Good morning, church. Thank you for joining us this morning. This morning, we get to look at the immutability of God, and that is a glorious thing. That Our God is unchanging. We also get a little backstory on John Knox. Uh, John Knox once said something that I find near and dear to my heart. He said, I never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I step into the pulpit. It's John Knox. Let's pray this morning together before we get started. Father, we thank you for our opportunity this morning to gather together, to have the opportunity to know more about you. Father, we know this is a, a futile uh, a journey if it is not for your spirit to reveal yourself to us. So, Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself more to us. We pray, oh God, that as we look at your attributes, that we would grow in our awe of you, in our fear of you, that we would see you as a glorious and majestic God. Father, help us also to be encouraged by the, the saints who have gone before us, those you have gifted with faith and repentance, and those who have lived their lives for your glory. God, would you help turn our attention from the cares of this world to the things that you are concerned of and concerned about. Father, that your kingdom would continue to advance. Father, we also pray as we begin again this morning, as we prayed in corporate prayer this morning, we pray together for the Gillespie family, God. God, each of us are so thankful for them. We thank you for the love that you have poured into their hearts that we have all experienced through them. We thank you for their faithfulness to this church, even with them being in Texas. We thank you that their love is still felt, their encouragement is still received. God, we pray that you would work mightily in, in all the circumstances, that it would strengthen their faith, that it would bring testimony of your goodness throughout the hospital where Kim is at, that you would restore her to her family. We pray that you would guard her, her kiddos, their minds, their hearts, that they would find their strength in you, that you being the God of all comfort, would comfort them now. We pray for Ty, that you would strengthen him to care for his children and also care for his wife. We pray that you would give him a peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Edinburgh this morning to continue our look at the life of John Knox. 
When Knox was released from enslavement on a French galley, Scotland was still too dangerous a place for the reformer. But England was friendly to the Reformation under its new king, Edward VI, the son of Henry VIII. In 1551, Knox was invited to preach before the young king. His preaching was warmly received, and he was offered an influential pulpit in London, a pulpit which he declined. Knox settled in Berwick-upon-Tweed, a northern English town, and for five years he was able to study, preach, and to apply a biblical model of the church. The town underwent a noticeable change for the better during this ministry. He even found time to marry a young woman named Marjorie. Her mother was a devout Protestant and often corresponded with Knox. Her father was not. Two years later, when the king died at the age of 16, his half-sister Mary took the throne. She quickly earned the nickname Bloody Mary by her fierce opposition to all things Protestant. She was determined to return England to the rule of the Pope using any means possible. In fact, 75% of England still sympathized with the Roman Catholic Church. She quickly broke all her promises of religious toleration and supported a severe persecution of the Protestant Church in her realm. The friends of Knox encouraged him to escape to the continent. In 1559, he left England for France and eventually settled with his family in Switzerland. He became the pastor of an English congregation in Geneva. And while in Geneva, he benefited greatly from the teaching and friendship of the Swiss reformer, John Calvin. Knox labored happily in Geneva, spending his time pastoring, preaching, writing, and even contributing to a new English translation of the Bible, known as the Geneva Bible. During this period, he was able to make a trip back to Scotland in order to inspect the condition of the Protestant church. He traveled and preached tirelessly, often only sleeping a few hours a night. Now, opposition to Knox continued as violently as ever. He once commented that he needed to keep a fast horse because the authorities had put a price on his head and anyone who killed him would be richly rewarded. Unable to capture Knox, the authorities burned him in effigy here on this spot, the site of the old market's cross. In 1558, Queen Mary died and Elizabeth took the throne. Elizabeth wanted to end the religious conflict that was tearing apart her kingdom. She promoted the return to a Protestant church, but one that still remained Catholic in its externals. Knox decided that it was time for him to return to Scotland, which he did in 1559. The summer of 1559 was a time of religious awakening throughout Scotland. In St. Andrews alone, 14 priests renounced the Roman Catholic Church and turned to a Christianity built on the righteousness of Christ. Knox continued to preach, and many were brought to a true knowledge of the living God. Back in Geneva, John Calvin received reports of the rapid spread of the gospel in Scotland. And he wrote, As we are astonished at such incredible progress in so brief a space of time, so we likewise give thanks to God, whose singular blessing is displayed herein. Knox later explained the success of the gospel with these words, God gave His Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance.
As a result, 1560 was one of the most significant years in the history of the Scottish Church. In August of that year, John Knox and five other ministers were called together by the Scottish Parliament to write a new confession of faith. Within four days, the Scots Confession was completed. Parliament immediately voted and approved the confession. Now, with a new confession in place, Parliament passed a series of acts that abolished papal authority and prohibited the celebration of the Catholic Mass. Also, all anti-reformation acts previously passed were repealed. The Protestant faith was legally established as the religion of Scotland. The epicenter of this spiritual earthquake was here at St. Giles Church where Knox was pastoring. He preached twice on Sundays and three times during the week in addition to the meetings that he held with other ministers and his extensive preaching travels. As many as 3,000 crowded this church to hear Knox's sermons. Knox later wrote, The person of the preacher is wretched, miserable, and nothing to be regarded. But the things that were spoken are the infallible and eternal truth of God. In 1561, a new queen took the throne in Scotland. Mary, Queen of Scots, not to be confused with Bloody Mary of England. She married the King of France. Both were determined to restore Roman Catholicism to Scotland. On her first Sunday in Scotland, the new queen commanded that the Mass be celebrated in her church. This was in open defiance of the laws of the land. In the following months, John Knox often appeared at court to warn her of her errors. His frequent rebukes earned him the animosity of the queen. Back in 1560, John Knox's wife Marjorie died. Three years after the death of his wife, he remarried a woman much younger than himself named Margaret. They enjoyed a happy marriage and had three children together. Incidentally, the marriage frustrated Queen Mary because Knox's second wife was the queen's relative. We have an interesting account of Knox's preaching one year before his death. By this time, his health was beginning to fail. An eyewitness tells us that Knox needed help getting up into the pulpit. He began the sermon in a quiet manner, explaining his text while leaning on the pulpit for support. Then, after about 30 minutes into the message, he came to his application. Knox became energized and nearly beat the pulpit to pieces. The eyewitness reported, that hearing Knox's application of scripture made his hands tremble so that he could no longer take notes. On the 24th of November, 1572, John Knox was very weak. He asked his wife to read from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John and the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which he described as a comforting chapter. She also read him selections from Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. In the evening, he gave a deep sigh and whispered, Now it is come. He passed away quietly. After his death, Knox's own servant described him as a man of God, the light of Scotland, the comfort of the church, the mirror of godliness. We need to stop and think for a moment. What motivated John Knox to live this kind of life? I want to mention three particulars. First, where did John Knox find his enduring courage? What sustained him in those times of deep despair? 
And why was it that he was fearless before those who could easily have ordered his death? Was it merely that John Knox was a naturally brave man? His contemporaries considered him fearless, but Knox said of himself, I quake, I fear, and tremble. There was something deeper than a natural courage. He once told his people at St. Giles, Christ's hand is so powerful, his mercy and goodwill so prompt that he delivers his little ones from their cruel enemy. It was Knox's understanding of God that gave him such extraordinary courage. Another area which demonstrated John Knox's biblical view of God was his prayer life. A man who knows the living God will often be found alone with that God in prayer. John Knox described prayer as an earnest and familiar talking with God. Three centuries after Knox's death, the London pastor Charles Spurgeon said of his praying, when John Knox went upstairs to plead with God for Scotland, it was the greatest event in Scottish history. According to the historian John Howie, the Queen Regent, who was Knox's ardent enemy, admitted that she was more afraid of his prayers than an army of 10,000 men. Finally, what about Knox's personal ambition? Here was a man that was at the center of a national movement which is still affecting Scotland nearly four centuries later. What was it that John Knox was seeking? What was it that he hoped to accomplish? What was so valuable that he was willing to risk his life repeatedly in order to gain it? Well, John Knox tells us. He wrote, I sought neither preeminence, glory, nor riches. My honor was that Jesus Christ should reign. This week you will have another opportunity to come face to face in Scripture with John Knox's God. Will you ask him to teach you as he did John Knox so many years ago? So that like Knox, your greatest ambition would be to see Jesus Christ reign unrivaled in his church today. During this week, you've had an opportunity to contemplate God's immutability. That is, the fact that God alone is subject to no change in the manner of his being, his perfections, his thoughts, his desires, his purposes, or his determinations. God has no capacity for change or alteration or modification or adjustment. God can never be amended or adapted or revised by anyone in his creation. He will always continue to be exactly what he has always been. Now, if we were to have said that about ourselves, it would be a shortcoming in human nature. It would be a character flaw. We would be stuck like this, and that would be a thing that would bring despair. But when we consider that this is true about the one being whose every perfection is beautiful, then it fills us with hope because that means that the believer can get up today and study the God who is. Even though we're reading a book that's thousands of years old, we're not reading about a God that simply was. We're not reading about a God that simply will be, but we are reading about the Lord who does not change. Today we're going to look at the immutability of God and how it affected the prayer life of a believer who lived in a period of time when God was judging his people. Now, strangely, this doctrine of immutability that we're going to look at tonight is 
found in a religious song or a psalm, Psalm 102. The psalms are often treated as non-theological. So a person might come to the psalms for a spiritual vitamin, kind of a pick-me-up, a, a warm thought for the day. Yet the psalms, in reality, are very theological. They say a great deal about God. But they are unique because in the psalms, we find the great realities of God colliding with the human condition. And we view all of this, it's presented to us as we watch a believer wrestle with these two apparently contradictory things. And surprisingly, the result is always the same. It's a song of worship. Well, let's look at Psalm 102 and this issue of God's immutability. It opens with a desperate cry in the first two verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. In the day when I call, answer me quickly. Now, it's very instructive that we have no formal opening in this psalm, no spiritual niceties, no, no titles and introductions. Go back and look at it again. Immediately, he drives to the, to the cry, Hear my prayer. Let my cry for help come to you. Don't hide your face from me. Incline your ear to me. Answer me quickly. This is a man in the grip of something that creates a desperate earnestness in his soul. But what is it? Well, there are two matters, really. And the first is the condition of God's people. The setting for this psalm is that the psalmist is returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. Now, you remember that for generations, the Jews were involved in idolatry. And God entered into a fatherly discipline, a gracious judgment to get their attention. After ignoring the prophets, they were finally taken by Babylon into exile, and the exile lasted 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, God released them. Can you imagine traveling back, back to Jerusalem? What would it look like? What would it feel like to see the capital city for the first time after the war? It's in ruins. The temple is destroyed and looted. What would the people think about God? It's not just a national issue. It's a religious issue. There were promises made to those people in that city, that throne of David, that temple. So imagine a Jewish family returning, and many of them would be young. They would have been born in Babylon. But some might be old enough to remember the city prior to the Great War. They come up, they see the hill, they see the destruction. It looks like this was never a place that God dwelt with man. And it would certainly ring a cry from the heart of any believer. But that's not an experience unique to an Old Testament saint. It happens today. Let me give you a couple of examples. Imagine a missionary returning after decades of labor abroad. They're coming home. They're looking forward to being with their own culture again, with joining other believers. They're older now, so they, they won't be in charge of church and ministry, but they want to help as they can. But as they come back to their culture and they join with the church, instead of joy, there's grief. Because the changes, the, the spiritual decline is shocking. And it rings a cry from their heart. Imagine an adult going back to their childhood town. 
going back to the church that they grew up in, they expect to see some of the same old faces. Yes, everyone will be a little older now. Some people won't be there. But many will be, and they'll be gathering around the Word of God again, just like when they were children. There'll be prayers. There'll be, there'll be songs. There'll be Christian fellowship. But instead, there's a shock. They go to the church. It's nearly empty. Only a few people are left. There's been a a terrible, steady spiritual decline. And the young pastor is trying every new gimmick just to stir up some interest, but it's, it's not working. And it rings a cry from their heart. Now, a day like this that the psalmist sees is not a time to offer up polite prayers. It's desperate. It breaks his heart. And so it moves the psalmist immediately to plead, God, you must hear this prayer. You must Bend down and listen. You must answer me quickly. Let my cry reach you. There is another element that creates this desperation, and that is the psalmist's awareness of the character of God. Now think about it. Faith. Believing what this book says about God and changing everything in our life, adjusting it all to fit with what God says. Faith is not always a comforting thing for a believer. Faith is often a thing that disturbs the believer, that interrupts our sleep, that haunts us, that bothers us with questions that God must answer. It's because we believe what God says about himself that we're no longer able to be happy with the spiritual status quo. In Psalm 77, verse 3, we find a psalm written in a similar time of spiritual decay. And the first few verses there reflect this few verses in Psalm 102 that we just read. Let me read this to you. My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out. Without weariness, my soul refused to be comforted. Why? He goes on to say, when I remember God, then I am disturbed. It's what the psalmist in Psalm 77 remembers about God that troubles him when he looks at the spiritual decline. In Psalm 102, it is what he believes to be true about God combined with the human condition that he sees, that troubles him. At the end of the psalm, we find his description of God. In verse 24, we read this. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Why is this the case? Why does this bother the the psalmist? Well, ask yourself this. How could a man or a woman who believed these things to be true of God and remembered the promises God had made to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob or to David or through the prophets, how could he believe these things to be true of God and then see the ruins of Jerusalem and the moral decline of God's people, and not, and not cry out to God, and not wrestle with God, and ask Him for a solution to this problem. He has to plead. So let's 
be very clear about this. It is a spiritual fact that it is the unbeliever, not the believer, that walks into a church and sees evidence of terrible spiritual drift and goes home unaffected. But the believer cries out. Now the grief is described in verses 3 through 11. And he uses a series of very picturesque descriptions. We wouldn't use these same descriptions when we describe our grief, but this man does. So listen to what he says. My days have been consumed in smoke. My bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop, he says. He goes on to say, my enemies, they reproach me all day long. I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. And he concludes by saying, I wither away like grass. Why? Because of these two great realities. The decline of God's people and the immutable character of God. It's a good test of our faith and our love for the church. Do you grieve? Do you grieve like this man for the state of the church? Or do you look at the church and say, well, things are bad. You look at religion in the nation, you say, well, things are bad. But for me, it's pretty good. I have a nice group of friends. I have a good church. I have a nice family. I'm satisfied. Do you feel the weight of the sin in the land? More to the point, do you feel the weight of the sin in the church? And does that collide with the reality of God's unchangeableness, his unchangeable purposes? Think about it. This ought to bother us, this contradiction. What we're seeing and then what we remember of God's purposes. God has purposed to give his son a bride that is clean. God has purposed to give his son a kingdom that will be made up of people that are gathered from every corner of the globe. God has purposed to make every single Christian like Jesus Christ in the end. So look around. Does it look like this is happening? If you didn't have the scriptures to explain it, would you look at the news and say, well, it's obvious what God's doing. He's gathering a great people. He's transforming them. God is being honored in his church. If God's great purposes, like his character, are immutable, they can't be adapted, right? They can't be changed or altered. Then there is a contradiction here between what we're seeing and what we're believing about God that drives us to cry out to God. So in Psalm 102, the first effect of the immutability of God on the believer is that there's real grief. But that's not it. There's also hope. In verse 12, the tone shifts. But you, O Lord. Now there's the shift. But you, O Lord, abide forever. And your name to all generations. It's amazing, isn't it? God is judging his people. But yet God, unchangeable God, is the hope of his people. 
Now that is more fully expressed in those final verses that we read just a moment ago. Let me read them to you again. There's a contrast here in verses 23 through 27 between humanity and God. So in verse 23, the psalmist says, He, meaning God, has weakened my strength in the way he has shortened my days. I say, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. You see the contrast. The man is pleading with the Lord. God, it's, I, I come home. I see the miserable scene. My heart is broken. I cry out to you. But instead of responding, it seems like you make me weaker. God, I'm afraid you're going to let me die early. My days are short. You live from generation to generation to generation, but not man. It's as if he's pleading with the Lord, God, be merciful, but don't just be merciful. Let me see your mercy in my day. So he goes on. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But you, I don't have much time, Lord. I'm pleading for mercy, but do it in my lifetime. God, having created all things, one day he will wrap them, he'll bring them all together, kind of like a garment that gets wrapped up. It's gotten old, it's no good. He'll throw it away, he'll make a new creation. All that will change. Things that to us seem beyond change, all creation will be changed. But God will endure Not only will he outlast creation, but in the new creation, he will be no different than he is now. He is immutable. Where do you go? You. Where do you go when you tire of man's fickle allegiance to God? Where do you go when you tire of seeing people walk away from Christ? Where do you go when people you thought were going to love the Lord have grown cold? Where do you go when you look in the mirror And you see in your own soul enough reason to despair. Well, you don't go to humanity. Man, there's no hope in man. A new gimmick, a new church growth scheme, a self-fix scheme. The immutability of God, it drives the believer to the one being who doesn't shift. God and all hope is in him. There's a third lesson regarding God's immutability and the believer and how we cry out to him in a time of great decline. What does the man ask an immutable God to do when things are this bad? Well, the great focus of his prayer is clear in verses 12 through 22. Listen to what he says. You will arise And have compassion on Zion, on on Jerusalem, on his people. For it is time to be gracious to her. What a wonderful argument. God, I know that your purposes for your people have not changed. And you will arise. But there's another thing. It's time. It's time to be gracious. For the appointed time has come. How does he know that? He says, the nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth, your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. 
This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Now that's a prayer worth pleading. God, we long to see you honored again. How are we going to see that? You're going to have to restore your people. The people of God are like a mirror of the Lord. We see him reflected in them. It's not a perfect reflection, but it is a true reflection. And if God is going to be exalted and he's freed his people from their judgment, he's going to have to bring back days of real spiritual prosperity. And so that's what he pleads for. What would you plead for? Would you plead that God removes the symptoms of sin, the misery that we brought upon ourselves? Would you plead that God would fix your church? Doesn't matter about others. Would you plead that God would just fix your country? Maybe fix your marriage, your family. Maybe fix you. Would you ask God to do something to relieve us of the constant awareness of the consequences of our sin? Or would you start where the psalmist starts? God, immutable God, you deserve an unchanging glory from generation to generation. And this is what I'm pleading for. Get that for yourself in the way that you deal with your people. Why plead for anything less? Why plead for anything less than a work of grace in the church? A work of grace in your own soul that will bring God glory, not only in our day, but for generations to come. The psalmist is pleading for the Lord to do something that could be reported in the next generation. Do you pray that way? God doesn't change, so the next generation owes him glory. We owe him glory. The generation before us owed him glory. So that's not going to be altered. So we're praying and we're asking the Lord, don't just work in us. Don't just rescue us, but work in us in such a way that something could be reported to the next generation and the next generation From generation to generation, they would know of your glory. And not just within the church, but it would spread into all the land. We might ask ourselves this question, right? Just very practical. When did such a thing last occur in your church? Have you thought of that? When did you plead with the Lord in times of moral decline? Because you couldn't keep quiet, seeing what was happening in the church, knowing God to be the unchangingly glorious God, knowing his purposes haven't changed. When was the last time you cried out to God and he responded by doing such a work in your church that it would be worth mentioning to the next generation? To a generation, the psalmist says, that haven't even been born. The third effect of the immutability of God on the psalmist is that he desired to see God get glory that doesn't change from generation to generation. Now, for the Christian, this is a particularly sweet passage. 
You think what the psalmist had. He's coming back from exile. He's known the consequences of sin. He's seen the faithfulness of God, but how did he see it? Primarily, he saw it in God keeping his threats. He returns to Jerusalem. The city's in ruins. The people are mocked. God is mocked. The temple's in ruins. And the Jews despair. What does he have to work with here? Well, not nearly as much as you have to work with, Christian. In the book of Hebrews, the Jewish Christians are being tempted to go back. So they have Christ now. And Jews are coming and saying to them, look, it's, you've got this Jesus. But I mean, really, what have you gotten? He's despised. His, his preachers are despised. You've lost everything. If you want to have Jesus, that's fine. But you need to come back and add back all the rituals of Judaism. Well, one of the cures to that was that the writer gave them picture after picture of the supremacy of Christ. And one of the pictures he gives is from this chapter. Amazing, isn't it? Hundreds of years before, the psalmist is crying out to God during one of the darkest periods of the history of his people. And the very words he uses are crafted by the Holy Spirit so that hundreds of years later when the Messiah comes, the Christian can turn and say to the world, this is our Christ. What is he? Well, it's this passage here. You created. You fashioned everything. You will one day bring it all to an end. And there'll be a new creation. But you, Jesus Christ, the creator, you will endure and you will never be altered. It's the son of God, your savior, that was entrusted with creation. It's the son of God, your savior, who will put an end to that creation. The son of God, your savior, will not end, but nor will he be altered. So we look at the spiritual condition of our land. Like the psalmist, we look at the spiritual condition of the church. We look at the spiritual condition of our own soul. And then we look not just at God in the abstract, but at the Son of God, our kinsman, united to our humanity, ruling beside the Father, unchanging. And we realize what he's promised us. And we go again and again before him. And we plead with him. You are the immutable Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And your purposes have not been altered. There's been no adjustment or amendment to your plans. And when I look at the church, God, it's hard to, it's hard to reconcile what I'm seeing with what I'm reading. But like the psalmist thousands of years ago, I will not leave you alone until the gap is closed between what I know to be true of you and what I see happening in the church. So we come to God and we plead with him and we give him no rest until the great realities of his glory, the weight of his glory, start to be made visible in his people. Well, let's pray. Our everlasting God, immutable, every one of your perfections, unchanging. They cannot increase they cannot decrease. They cannot be adapted to fit our understanding. God, you are the same God that was worshipped by Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. You are the God of the prophets. You are the God of this psalmist who returned to such a bleak scene. And you are the God of every person who has come to you through Jesus of Nazareth today. 
Our needs have not altered, God. We are still a needy people. We are as needy at this moment as the first time we met you. And because your glory has not changed, we plead with you like the psalmist, God, act. You have the right to do as you wish, but we are asking you, because our lives are short, Lord, would you do it in our day? Would you restore your church so that you would receive an immutable glory so that we would have something to tell the next generation? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, basically, when we say God is immutable, we mean that he doesn't change. Um, but then we've got to go on to describe what that means. Um, we need to make clear, I think, that it doesn't mean God is like a fixed photograph, but that he's a person who is constant, uh, that he is true and faithful and good and righteous and just and holy, and he is all of this all of the time. And that means that he will always be omniscient, always be omnipresent, always be omnipotent. That has a profound effect upon us. It had a profound effect upon David. He asked God to search him and to know his ways and his thoughts. And that's the implication and I think the impact of grasping the relationship between the immutability of God and his other attributes. I'm thinking of those three in particular. Instead of just thinking of them as theological constructs, they actually bear in upon our lives and give us a sense of his wonder, his greatness, his glory. So the writer of Hebrews, who's laboring to show us the majesty of Jesus, his unrivaled superiority, goes in detailed form through the priesthood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. And at the end of the book, he says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. He is the God that Scripture reveals to us from first to last. That's really what gives us assurance. Looking not in the mirror anymore, though that's a good thing to do from time to time, but looking out to him and and resting upon his character, his character, the immutable, wonderful, merciful God. You know, I sometimes say that God's immutability is a great comfort to the believer, but it really should be a terror to the unbeliever. Um, I think if I remember, Jonathan Edwards spoke about this, that people wouldn't mind God being holy for a little while but that he is immutably holy, is a terror to them. When the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed, he's talking to a particular group of people. That's his redeemed. That's his choice possession. And uh, with the New Testament application, we can say that's the people who've given their life to King Jesus. What would he say to people who have not met him in Christ, they would hear something like this. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, 
you will be consumed. It does mean that his holiness, his purity, his justice are unchangeable. And that therefore means that if we defy him and build up a character that is anti-God and anti-Christ, and we live our lives in that way and die in that way, then the justice and the holiness and the purity and the judgment of God are changeless. So there will be no second chance after death. And yet the reality in God that he is immutably holy, that's a terror to the unbeliever, is a great comfort to the believer. You see, God is the same, and he deals with people all on the same terms. And unless you repent, you will perish. His immutability demands it. He requires that his honor be upheld in welcoming sinners into his presence. How can that happen? He's not going to change. That's why the gospel is so precious. So I'd say to an unbeliever, because God will not change, you must repent. You must turn from your sin, and you must throw yourself on his mercy. And if you will, he will give you his favor, and he will give you his unfailing love, and he'll never turn from you. He makes extravagant promises like, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Uh, all these are bedrock promises for his people, and only for his people, and he's not going to change. So when we speak about the immutability of God, we mean that he, all He is, He always is. And He always is that to us who are His children, and therefore He is always reliable. And eventually that means for us that with respect to the promises He's made, He can be absolutely trusted. And the way in which He's really proved that is that He gave a promise to save us, and though it cost us a everything to trust him, we remember that it cost him the best he had to prove that he would keep his promises. So in many ways, the immutability of God lies very much at the foundation of his being and is the anchor of our Christian faith. We began the study looking at John Knox, and it was amazing that for all that John Knox, by the grace of God, did, the enemy of John Knox was more concerned about his prayer life than 10,000 soldiers. That's a testimony of someone's prayer life. And we were encouraged in the immutability of God that it would inform our prayers as it informed the psalmist's prayer. So as we close, let's inform our closing prayer by the immutability of God. Father, as we find ourselves in a season of change in our church, Father, we are comforted this morning to be reminded that you are a God who does not change. And because you are a God who does not change, all is well with our soul and all is well with our church. Father, we praise you that we can find comfort in this and Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, not only to ask for your grace upon our church during this season, but that that grace would affect the next generation and the generation after that 
and the generation after that. Father, help us to be mindful of the example and the legacy that we leave for the generations after us. God, may it be that we constantly look to you, look to your son, and look to the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.